Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hi. How'd you know it was me? Same caller ID. Oh, what's it say? Linda trip. It does? I have an unpublished phone, the idiot. The great story here is this vast right-wing conspiracy that has been conspiring against my husband since the day he announced for president. May of 91, Bill Clinton harassed me on the job and then basically told me, let's keep this between ourselves. We had no sexual relationship with this young woman. There is not a sexual relationship. That is accurate. Hello and welcome to episode one, technically episode one of Still Watching colon, American Crime Story colon, Impeachment. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I am Vanity Fair's awards and audio editor Katie Rich. Richard has has uh, found himself a, a stranded in the mountains. No, he's off at Telluride. So Katie and I are helming the ship this week, which is, I think, is suitable for this opening episode, which really uh, introduces us to a lot of fascinating women. Uh, so here it is. Uh, it's, it's, go ahead. <laughs> it's, it's nice of you to say that, that Richard's at Telluride, but in fact, he's just checked into the Watergate to try to get the full uh, Monica Lewinsky experience. <laughs> it's true. He's digging through the trash at Watergate to sort of <laughs> find out what's going on. No, no, no. Um, it's ladies night here on uh, Still Watching. Um, if you are just joining us for the first time, what we do in this show is we break down an, a season of television that we are sort of obsessively watching. Right now, we are obsessively into American Crime Story, colon impeachment. Uh, you can listen to our preview episode, which we dropped last week, where we talked to... Um, Showrunner Sarah Burgess, if you want to, if you want to hear her thoughts on on things, 
This week, our colleague Chris Murphy talked to the great Annalie Ashford, who plays Paula Jones. So uh, you will hear that towards the end of the episode. We will throw to that interview. But this is this is our introdu- introduction to some key players. So we're going to talk about Paula. We're going to talk about Linda. We're obviously going to talk about Monica. Um, and also, we want to hear from all of you. So if you want to email us, stillwashingpod at gmail.com. That's where you can find us. Uh, we asked for some prompts last week. We're not going to get to them this week because we're recording this a little early. Um, so you haven't had a chance to email us yet. You're but sending us your prompts in the future. Yeah, soon we will be able to read all of your emails and we're excited for this to be sort of an interactive show. Uh, the prompt and I'm excited to hear from people once they've seen episode one too. Like I think the preview episode, we got into a lot of the themes of the show, but I do think there's a real value in like seeing it for yourself. Of course. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I, and I am, I'm, I want to hear from folks, uh, what their experience was of, of this whole thing. How old were you? What is your, depending on how old you were at the time, what is your memory of it? Uh, if you weren't even born at the time, which is technically possible, of course it is. Uh, you know, what is your idea of it as a historical event sort of thing? So I'd, I'd love, I'd love to hear from folks on that. Um, but we're going to start at the very beginning of this episode, a very good place to start. Um, on a, a night, January 13th, 1998, uh, known as Prom Night, because that was the name of the operation uh, for gross reasons that we'll get into. Mm -hmm. But this is where it all starts. Katie, what do you think of this? We then zoom back to 93, 94, et cetera. But what do you think of of the show starting with January 13, 1998? I mean, it's such a, it's like a TV cliche at this point, right? Where you like start with like some dramatic moment and then it's like, you know, the record scratch. How did I get here? Uh, (laughs) And, you know, they're doing it a little bit more elegantly than that. And I do think the like, you start with the betrayal, like, because you go into a show called Impeachment, like, it can be about Bill Clinton, it could be about Ken Starr, it could be about Ann Coulter, like, you know, and all these people play roles in it. But to start with Linda and Monica, like, to get into the meat of the story from the very beginning, I think is really useful for framing what to expect from it. Um, and you go through this whole process of her being brought into this hotel room, and uh, it ends uh, right before it cuts the title on, I want that treacherous bitch to see what she's done to me. And I was so stunned by that. And I think the version of Monica that we see uh, in the episode is really not that person, but that's a real line. She really said that as I learned on slow burn, which is incredible. Yeah. I think Monica herself put that in her book or so, you know, like this is Monica's recollection of what she said. Cause it's, it's one of those moments. This is something I talked to Sarah about last week. Like there are lines that you will hear in the show where you're like, well, that's a little over the top. And then you'll <laughs> find out almost every single case. You'll find out that that's actually something that was said, at least according to the recollection of the people who are there or it's captured on tape. So yeah. Yeah. It's uh, what no, a, a lot line. of this is captured on tape. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we learn what a line to go out on. So uh, um, I've also yeah. had uh, it's a beautiful life. Uh, is that Asa base? Uh, what yeah, the song that I she's doing so. that Monica's doing her aerobics to like, it's been stuck in my head ever since I watched this episode. <laughs> well, it, something that I really love about this opening too, is we've got Monica. She's packing up to leave for New York, which is what Monica had been planning to do uh, mm-hmm. here in January 1998. Uh, and and you have her say goodbye to her barista at Starbucks, et cetera. And it just, you get the sense of someone who almost made it out mm-hmm. of all of this without her entire world being upended. She's like, the, you know, one last job sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, one last lunch with Linda Tripp and, uh, and then it all came crashing down. So. Yeah. I mean, she was already in so deep, like, you know, the fact that, the job she was leaving for was set up by Vernon Jordan, who was working for Clinton. Like, she was so entangled, she was never actually going to get out. But you do 
get that optimistic sense yet. She's like packing up her apartment. She's like got the newspaper from when Clinton got reelected. And you're like, maybe she won't take it with her. Maybe she'll really move on. And then it all came back around to her. The leaves of grass was like, <laughs> I was just talking to someone a couple of weeks ago about the fact that uh, and this person had not seen uh, the show, but we were talking about Bill Clinton and he was talking about how Clinton gave Monica, this is a present that Clinton gave Monica famously a copy of Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass and how that is like one of the smoothest like <laughs> gifts you could give a mistress is like, here's a volume of a beautifully bound volume of poetry. It's the so. same book he gave to Hillary when they were dating. I it? mean, the man has a move. He that, has one move. It works. That really and, grosses me out. Like yeah. there's a lot of gross behavior in this story, but uh, come on, have some respect for Hillary. That's it's tough. Um, and then we we briefly see in this opening montage, we briefly see um, another familiar face who we won't see again for a little while in the show, which is Mike Amick, who's played by Colin Hanks. And um, I talked to Sarah last week in the preview episode about Mike Amick because he's one of the most fascinating to me figures in all this because there is so little about him that exists because as soon as you know the thing i don't know if you have this experience when you watch these shows but when someone crops up i know you do because i i was like oh wow taryn killam's here playing paula jones husband and you immediately shot me back a photo of paula jones actual husband and be like wow that's good casting yeah. like <laughs> you immediately want to go and see what the real person looked like uh to see if the if the casting looks wise let alone you know um sort of Feelings wise makes yeah. sense. And uh and so I immediately went to look for a photo of Mike Emick when I saw um Colin Hanks was here. There's literally like one that exists on the internet. Wow. And it's sort of like this weird candid with a filing cabinet behind him. Um and there's so little information because unlike so many people involved in this. He is not someone who wanted to talk about this for the rest of his life. Yeah. And so there's so little from him. And then he passed away um, kind of recently. And so it's just like he remains this really, which I think is an interesting challenge for for Sarah as she's writing him, of, of all the figures in this story, maybe the most sort of impenetrable. Does that make sense? Yeah. When he was one of the ones who like didn't seem crazy about how it all shook out, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a uh, lot. When you hear from these folks talk about what happened, especially on that January 13, 1998 night, there's a lot of regret. A yeah. lot of regret, it seems like. So, um, yeah. So we will return to 1998 eventually yeah. down well, the road. When you when you said that there was a familiar face, I thought you were going to say uh, Leonardo DiCaprio on the cover of Vanity Fair on the newsstand that Monica goes to in the mall, um, which is a <laughs> uh, a cover I know very well. Um, I didn't clock that, but I love that you clocked. <laughs> oh that. yeah, no, I she she buys a different magazine, but I I definitely saw Leonardo's masterpiece cover story on there because January 98, Leonardo DiCaprio was like. Was the biggest person in the country until, I guess, Monica became the yeah. biggest person in the country. Um, something that you and I had talked about that we didn't really maybe realize until we were a few more episodes into the series is is how Monica comes from a lot of money. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, rewatching it, knowing that she drives a very fancy car, like yeah, uh, those that that's a that's a, an early signal. And also costume wise, we're going to talk about this a little bit more when we get to Paula Jones. But there are photos of Monica and Linda where Monica is wearing that exact like fleece leggings, scrunchy ponytail combo. Like that's an exact outfit. So that's sort of the vibe we're going for. <laughs> if we can get the exact outfit, we're going for the exact outfit sort of thing. So yeah, there you go. Yep. 
Um, so we're gonna, the, the show itself then goes to Linda, and we will obviously be talking a lot about Linda Tripp, but I wanted to actually talk about Paula Jones first. Um, and this is a, you know, we, we've talked about this before, uh, in the preview episode, but something that, uh, Ryan Murphy has said, there's a whole New York Times article about this, is this idea of presenting this story through the lens of the women. And the four major women in this story are, Monica Lewinsky, Linda Tripp, Paula Jones, and Hillary Clinton. Of mm-hmm. those four women, I feel like I knew Paula Jones the least. What was your like knowledge of Paula Jones before the series watching the Yeah, I, I virtually nothing. Like I knew, you know, the the basics that she had sued Clinton and that she was kind of like a tabloid target. Uh, maybe not as as extremely as Monica was, but to that extent, she was from Arkansas. I definitely didn't know what her voice was like. And as a um, as a Southerner, I always like when anyone's doing a Southern accent, I'm always like, OK, all right, let's see if this is real. And then um, Googled Paula Jones. And as, as we'll discuss, like she sounded exactly like Annalie mm-hmm. Ashford, like to a crazy degree. Um, and I definitely remember like the big hair and the makeup and everything. And they get into kind of her personal look in the show. But yeah, I think same as you, like she was a much more obscure figure than the other ones. She, um, you know, much has been made about Linda Tripp's, um, like, the prosthetics and and um, padding that uh, Sarah Paulson's wearing as Linda Tripp. But there's a number of prosthetics throughout the show. We'll get to Clive Owen as Bill Clinton. But the nose here uh, is a prosthetic on the tip of her nose on Annalie Ashford. And, you know, Paula Jones sort of famously got a nose job over the course of this whole thing. And it's part of the story. So, um how 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 are these lighter prosthetics working for you, Katie? Oh, I don't even. I don't think I realized. I googled Annalie Ashford. I was like, I'm I'm really bad at noticing like noses and plastic surgery. So I was like, <laughs> is that a fake nose? Um, so extremely well. And like, obviously, there's a lot of hair. Like, I certainly mm-hmm. realized that that was a wig, and I think that looks great too. It's really, she's a really lived in character and really not caricatured, which I think is um really part of the mission of the show is to make these people exist as fully fledged human beings. Annalie Ashford is someone that Richard and I talked about a lot in American Crime Story Versace. She played like a, a pretty peripheral character in that show, but she was incredible uh, in that role. She's more of a stage actress, I think, than she is a TV and film actress, though she's been in a number of things. But she's just someone that I think is just underrated, incredible. And I think she's really, really good in this role. The amount of like deer in a headlights um vibe that she gives to Paula Jones. This uh there's there's a spine to her. There's the determination, but there's also a sense of a woman who is just swept up in something so much bigger than herself. There's um there's pride and just complete fear and vulnerability, all of that together. Well I think uh, it sets up so well that like none of this might have happened if that article in uh, the American Spectator which is about Troopergate, which like, I feel like you've done the deep dive on Troopergate. Maybe you can explain it better to the rest of us. Um, but it claimed that she had like volunteered herself to be like one of Clinton's girlfriends. And like she was so adamant that that never happened, that this was an unwanted sexual advance. And if they hadn't said that, maybe she never would have sued. And none of this would have happened. I know. It's one of those dominoes, right? So, yeah, mm-hmm. David Brock, who's a journalist who wrote um, this article um, his cheating heart, I think, is the is the title of it in the in the American <laughs> Spectator, and uh, and Troopergate is this uh sort of scandal about when he was governor, when Clinton was governor in Arkansas, and these troopers were 
used state troopers were used to coerce women to like come and you know do give sexual favors to Bill Clinton um, or be sexually assaulted by Bill or, Clinton or or to and, just like invite them up. Like it's unclear if there was like how much coercion when there was happening, but like. You get the sense that there were plenty of women who would happily go do that. Uh, and Paula Jones was just well. I mean, but so that's the framing in the article, right? But what 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 uh, subsequently came to light? So David Brock, who wrote the article, um, and and was famous before that article for writing um an article called "The Real Anita Hill," um, challenging the claims of Anita Hill, um, had a change of heart or uh, a change of allegiance at least. And switch sides. Uh, it's, yeah. it's weird to talk about these things as sides, but but the way that Brock describes it is that he he discovered that um, the troopers in his story, among other things, that the troopers in his story had been paid by enemies of the Clintons. That's what he alleges, um, and a number of other things. And so he wrote a book later called "Blinded by the Right." In 2002, <laughs> uh, and just became like a real Clinton acolyte later. But he was, you know, but he was one of the gleeful, uh, you know, punctures of of the Clinton legacy earlier in his career. And and so Troopergate is really interesting because there's not much there. There, I think about it journalistically. You, Katie, as my editor, would never have let me uh, write or print Troopergate. I think. Oh yeah. Uh, there's no, there's not enough evidence there. And especially you would not let me put the first name of one because they just put Paula in the article, not Paula Jones. You would not let me put the first name of a woman in an article without talking to her like way yeah. more. Like all of this stuff is hugely journalistically, ethically, uh, sloppy is the kindest, uh, way that I could say it, but it is a, a major domino in all of this in that mm-hmm. it gets, it sweeps Paula Jones up because, Everyone in her circle knows that that's her and yeah. sweeps her up in all of this. And then we should also talk about the figure of her husband. What What is your what is your read on this guy? Uh, yeah, here? I was just going to say, because, you know, it, you see her. She's got the magazine. She's like living. They're living in Long Beach and he's trying to make it as an actor. Um, and he comes home and he does this kind of like typical macho thing of like, everyone's going to know that my wife was in a hotel room with Bill Clinton. And you're like, all right, buddy, like this isn't really about you. But he's also kind of a pitiful figure. Like he's not this easy villain, um, which I don't think it, the show really needs him to be. And like Ed Heron Killam is really like well cast and like does a really good job. Again, another good Southern accent. So I think like he and Paul are just kind of trying to like scramble for whatever they can get in this world. Like he's not doing that well as an actor. Um, and you feel bad for him and more bad for her, but I, I felt bad for him too. I feel bad for him, but at the same time, when I found out that like they got divorced shortly thereafter, mm. I'm just sort of like, because I feel bad for him and I, I feel very bad for her. And there is a pop, it there, but there is this implication, at least in how it's scripted here, that his wounded pride is a big part of what pushes her into yes. this lawsuit, right? Yeah, that she suffered immensely because of his wounded pride. Right. And, like, not to say she shouldn't have pursued the apology and recompense and all that sort of thing on her own, but I just, you know, it's just another force sort of buffeting this woman um, in one direction or another. And, um, yeah, so... And he... Uh- he wants uh, a role in designing women because the Clintons <laughs> are friends with the creators. And I guess right now has been a love interest for Delta Burke. Maybe they can bring me back if the chemistry's good. Yeah. Like he, he knows how to speak the lingo. Yeah. 
yeah, it's a uh, Linda. Ble- this is not the last of the uh, of the designing women women verse that will show up in this. Oh my god! There was also oh that great gosh. line. Not to get too distracted, but there's this great line in 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 Linda's storyline about you'll be seated next to Estelle Parsons from the Roseanne show. I mean, it's yeah. just like so there'll be two VIPs. <laughs> Still Parsons, incredible stuff. Um, but yeah, uh, Linda Bloodworth Thomason and her husband, who co-created Designing Women, uh, were great friends of the Clintons, and I think like somehow worked around the Clinton. I mean, they definitely heavily campaigned for, and I, it's the reason why I knew who Clinton was before he was president because they would mention him as the governor of Arkansas on the show because they were from. Wow, Arkansas. yeah, that's they would, a good like, memory. They would talk. Well, I rewatched Designing Women. So <laughs> they would talk about him as governor of Arkansas. And then there's a whole episode about the the characters on Designing Women. Uh, and if you've never watched Designing Women, uh, but you love the actress Jean Smart, that is her origin story. Go watch Designing oh, Women. Yeah. It's all it's on, on Hulu. Hulu. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that there's a whole episode about the characters from Designing Women going to the Clinton inauguration and getting stuck in an airport trying to get to the Clinton inauguration. The whole thing. So, um, That's right. So, okay, but let's get back to the the Joneses, which is, uh, then they go to CPAC, which is this thing that um, did happen. CPAC is not a thing that I was aware of until the Trump presidency is when I Mm. became aware of what CPAC was. Um, But it's, you know, it's this massive conservative gathering. I don't know what it, exactly what it was then, but it's, given what they show us, seems like it's similar to what it is now, which is it's like a friendly home for a sort of fringe, frothing aspects of the conservative wing um, of government. And uh, because you see all this merch mm-hmm. that's like impe- impeach the bitch of Hillary Clinton. There's another one with like uh, Bill that's essentially lock him. It's like a lock, a real locker up vibe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think the idea thing. is that that used to be more uh, fringe to CPAC and it has become more and more central to the whole thing. And you see with this whole like Trooper Gate Paula Jones press conference that's centering on like it, the turnout's not huge. Like it was not the main event at that right. point. So exactly. maybe the great minds of the conservative movement really were speaking back then and it's changed since then. But um, yeah, that this was considered like a real rinky dink, a real like failure because of, you know, they were trying to be very delicate and restrained and, and not, uh, I think it was like not dishonor the office of the president by getting too graphic in details, et cetera. But a lot of the stuff that you hear from Paula here, uh, is word for word and intonation for intonation, uh, what that press conference was like. Yeah. Um, the way she says, like, I, I won't speak on that. Yeah, yeah exactly. That. exactly. Oh, you feel so bad for yeah, her. Yeah, and 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 the. I mean, this whole thing is going to be an indictment of the media, but the journalists in that scene, you're just like, Jesus. Now, are the journalists like? Did you see the journalists in that moment? Like, they felt a little inflated to me. They it's did. The, I the have, path of jackals vibe there. I have heard audio from it, and then I looked it up on YouTube today, and all I could see were clips of her speaking. Yeah. So I did not hear the journalists, and I had the same reaction you did, where they just felt like a little too uh, jackally to be. Yeah, real. you can but imagine you know, them being annoyed and like saying afterward how ridiculous it was, but like the the extent to which they are so cruel to her face felt a little much. But you know, uh, not not that the media really uh, executes itself very well over the course of this series. Again and again, I'm surprised what's ripped directly from what happened. So I, yeah, I will try to see true. if I can hunt down what those journalists sounded like. But um, yeah. this this is not a successful moment. But she's pushed up here once again by like all of this is being pushed along by people who have a vested interest in 
taking down Clinton, right? So that's that's just clear because Ann Coulter um, and a couple of these these folks, <laughs> these powerful conservative DC folks, Joe Marcus and Richard Porter are two big figures that we won't see a lot of because they they haven't remained sort of famous people. But George Conway, Kellyanne Conway's husband, and Ann Coulter, who is Ann Coulter, um, who remain uh you know very public figures were part of this team that was pushing behind the scenes to get this Paula Jones thing going and the idea was and and Kobe Smulders delivers it perfectly as Ann Coulter this idea of like if we push it to a case where Bill Clinton has to testify he will lie and in lying we could get him on perjury and that's the whole idea I love the delivery of you know he's Bill Clinton he'll lie lie. like I mean it's it's one of several moments, and I think more of them come later, where Ann Coulter says something, you're like, I mean, she's right. Yeah. Like, okay. And she's so obnoxious, but so you get why she became famous, because she's funny, even though she's awful, you know? Kirby Saunders is really good at that. She's really good. <laughs> it's, it's Yeah, that's the thing about Ann Coulter is, like, um, you never like to agree with her. Uh, and you never like to find her witty or amusing, but sometimes she's witty and amusing, and it's it's uncomfortable. Worst person you know just made a great point, <laughs> exactly. and you get it right every time. <laughs> exactly. But so they push her beyond this sort of local Arkansas lawyer to uh, you know to get her case taken up by, and apparently a number of sort of higher power lawyers were chomping at the bit to take the Paula Jones case, but. Um, Davis and Camerata are are the two lawyers who end up taking your case, and they are once again aided by these behind the scenes, and 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 they're being they're being billed for their help uh, from these behind the scenes uh, folks who are doing a lot of research, high level research, onto how to turn this Paula Jones complaint into a huge problem for the Clintons. Um, so that's all there's. I mean, the last thing I'll say about Paula Jones. Once again, I think Annalie Ashford is great, but it's an interesting thing that um, the show has decided to not get extremely sexually explicit in what it shows. That was Mm -hmm. a decision that they made. But then you have these moments like Paula Jones drawing Bill Clinton's penis. You know what I mean? And you you just you cannot be genteel in a story like this. And that's part of the reason why we were all so captivated is... Uh An uncomfortable word, but that's the word because it's so seedy. Every aspect of the seedy, you know what I mean? Yeah. I still struggle to realize what her drawing it, what good it did. It's not like she's a courtroom sketch artist. Like, I don't know. This may be too explicit for this podcast, especially, but she did it and it's part of the historical record. So I guess someone found it useful. I mean, the line, it takes a dramatic turn. I know. No, that line is incredible. (laughs) So good um so that's the thing but like you know in in with all this like seediness and humor is once again this is really vulnerable there's this beautiful shot when they're talking to her about like you know is there is there anything you don't want to have come out it'll all come out it's just a shot of Annalie ashford in profile her eyes sort of welling up and it's just you know mm-hmm. it's 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 a really it's a really hard to watch moment. There, there's, there's comedy and scandal, but there's just also immense tragedy hanging over all of this. So, yep. Um, all right. So that let's let's go to Linda. Um, we start with Linda in 1993, and like what's what's important to note about how we meet Linda here, you know, beyond the morning cigarette and slim fast shake, is the, you know, hushed 
uh, poshness of the White House and her position there, as it will mm-hmm. contrast to the Pentagon later. What did you think of this introduction? Oh, she's got such a, all her little lamps and her printer right next to her. Actually, it just occurred to me that like there's a whole drama about the printer when she goes work at the Pentagon and she's got one on her desk and it's right there and everything works perfectly. And Vince Foster, who's a boss, who I'm certain we'll get into, like just seems like a good boss. Like he seems like a nice, thoughtful person to work for. Um, and she loves it and you get why she loves it. And you, I think you get really early on her sense of being like i am here doing the most important work in the world and that is such a huge part of why she makes the choices that she does something i didn't notice until i watched all the way through and then looped back to this first episode she's smiling in that first scene in a way that we don't ever see her smile again Mm. that this is like linda in her element feeling valued and in her element um and happy in a way she'll never according to you know this depiction of her will never be happy again Although you can also see how, high, like, you know, so you see um, Edie Falco show up very briefly as Hillary Clinton and say, uh, I think she just says the words hello. Right. Because uh, she and Linda Tripp are in the same bathroom. And Linda is, like, so outraged that the first lady would use the bathroom that everyone else doesn't even have an office in the West Wing. Uh, but she kind of loves that, too. Like, her whole snobbiness is part of what gives her pleasure, too, of being like, well, I was around when everything was better. Um, and she's got this really willing uh, listener in Kathleen Willey, who um, becomes a big part of the story in the episode. In the episode and, and in the whole thing, I, I yeah. really had forgotten about Kathleen Milley as like, oh, an absolutely. elemental of this. Um, well, she's but- such a good counterbalance to Linda that like Monica kind of becomes later in the show, like listening to her being like, okay, Linda, yeah, you're in the eye of a cur- hurricane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I, I, I didn't look at the actress who plays her, but she's really good. It's Elizabeth Rezer, yeah. Of, oh, of, right, right, right. Of Twilight fame and other fame. But um, sorry. Sorry to put Twilight fame next to Elizabeth <laughs> Rezer's name. She deserves more. She's done uh, m- much good work. But uh, she's fantastic in that, yeah. yeah, that like she seems like a somewhat meek person, but is rolling her eyes so hard. But at the same time, like there is something about Linda that these younger women are drawn to her uh-huh. do you know what i mean and uh-huh. there's a way in which she inserts herself and that that's the theme over and over again is linda inserting herself into things right yeah well definitely true of like vince foster and whitewater we hear her saying this episode like i know too much or i'm definitely gonna have to testify or uh-huh. all this sort of stuff like that like building up her sense of importance in all these events but um yeah, and and we talked about this in the preview episode, but just in case folks didn't listen to this, like what it, what was your first impression of when you finally saw what Sarah Paulson was doing um, under all of these, you know, um, prosthetic additives in this role? I think it's how quickly it became complex, like how it takes like two scenes for you to get her loving working at the White House, being a snob about the Clintons, wanting to inflate her sense of importance, but also being really good at her job, really liking Vince Foster, like every... There's not really a wasted moment and you get such a complex portrait so quickly. And, you know, we talked in the preview episode about kind of mixed feelings about the prosthetics and the the padding and everything. But I don't like she's so fully formed so early that you really I don't know. I just I have to admire it and get over any hesitation I would have about Sarah Paulson playing the role. It's teeth and posture almost more than, a, you know, and like, you know, it's like hair, pot, hair, hair, you know what I mean? But like the the posture is like a huge part of it. It's really interesting. It's a really, I, I you know, a bun- since we did the preview episode, you know, critics have released their um, <clears throat> reviews of the series, not all positive, And a lot of people are not liking this performance. And I just I'm I'm really into it. Like, mm-hmm. I, I think it's really 
it's a big performance, um, but also doesn't feel to me inhuman. It feels very no. It feels like somewhat like someone that you know that you've worked with, like the office busybody or the like the you know the person who thinks that everything was done better in the good old days. Like I, I, it just it's so real to me. The exasperate, a big part of that is the way the exasperated way, and you know, like we talked about Kathleen Millie, but uh, to zoom ahead just briefly. Her cubicle mate in the Pentagon, oh <laughs> who's just like, they're doing electrical work, Linda. <laughs> like, oh my God. <laughs> Linda. Anyway, uh, so good. Um, there's this detail about Vince Foster leaving these M&Ms, which is a true detail that happened. Um, it's such an interesting little detail. I'm so glad it's included because it's like, it's a gesture of kindness, but it's also like w- when you see them on the tray, it just looks like scraps. Also, yeah, it's like, here's my leftovers. Know? Yeah. It's, it's next so to my half eaten burger. And there was a container of them. He could have like put them back in the container and hand it. You know, there's just like, yeah. there was a way to leave them that didn't seem so. I've left you my scraps, Linda. And, and you've seen like, her like sneak the one M&M from the bowl in the White right. House cafeteria to get it for him. So you, you get like the weight of M&Ms. Like, yeah, wait, no pun intended, but like mm-hmm. the significance of it. Like she is like watching what she, you've seen her have this one fast. Um, and that he would know that. And like, you're right. It's like a real combination of a diss and a, and a kind gesture. Yeah. Um, we see Vince, uh, there's a really interesting moment, um, where we see Vince hand her a couple of envelopes, um, early in the day. And I, uh, you know, I, I paused my screener to look <laughs> you at what it was. Film that yeah, thing. I did. I did. So it's Alice May Foster, who's his mom, is who it's addressed to. And this is life insurance fund. And then I went Googling to see if like there's an evidentiary trail, because like if Vince Foster sent out some life insurance thing to his mom before yeah, he true. went off to kill himself, like that's, a huge that would be a huge piece of evidence that he did in fact kill himself, which is the whole heart of the quote unquote scandal. I don't like calling it a scandal, conspiracy but the, you know, theory. Conspiracy theory. Thank you. Um, but I could not find that in a, a good a good faith effort of googling. But I will keep looking to see if that is something I could find. I wonder if that was just to be like, hey, this is Vince Foster. Like you see the name Foster on the envelope, just to like really ping that in your brain maybe but it just like the life insurance part of the yeah that is weird it could you know anything. i was like what's going on so um you know if you're if you're at home and you know more about this than i do please, please don't get too deep on a reddit thread about this <laughs> don't <laughs> do that start tracking your phone. don't do that but but go ahead and email us if you know more than i do which you probably do but- there's also the light implications of the rumor that vince foster and hillary clinton were having an affair um yeah. which is like uh was a Rumor at the time and all of that, but so Vince Foster sort of, you know, my, my belief of the version of events uh, is that Vince Foster despairing at being entangled again and again in controversy of the Clinton administration. He followed these friends from Arkansas. Um, Travelgate is this whole thing with the travel office that you can look up if you need to, but like being involved again and again and all of that weighed too heavily on him. And, you know, whether he felt like he had let them down or whether he couldn't handle being in controversy at all. When he had um, a history of depression, so elements exactly. unrelated to working in the White House. All possibly. of that um, goes goes to the woods and kills himself. And this is a it's a huge moment that people still talk about all the time associated with the Clintons, this conspiracy theory that they had Vince Foster killed. Um but for the purposes of this story, it's an inciting incident of Linda getting booted from the White House. Right. I do have a, like I think this first episode is really strong. I think it maybe ling- lingers on Vince Foster's suicide a little too long. Like you don't mm. want to like blow past a really 
awful moment in someone's life. And it was a really awful moment for Linda. But it does like, I think if you've tuned in, you've seen the cold open with Monica and Linda, you kind of get the rumor impeachment. You're like, wait, why are we lingering on Vince Foster in the woods in his car? Um, I don't know. I'm sure they had good reason for it. But that's that's like kind of the one misstep in this episode for me. I think I, I mean, I, I don't wholly disagree with you, but I think um, a big part of it is um, or a part of it seems to me to be at least like, yes, he definitely killed him. <laughs> like, this is the stance the yeah, show yeah, is yeah, taking. Sure. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, but, no ambiguity about it. Right. Exactly. Um, before Linda leaves the White House, we get a little bit more of Bernie Nussbaum, um, played by Kevin Pollack. Uh, he is vehemently against this idea of hiring an independent, uh, counsel. Um, and George, we get a brief cameo from George Stephanopoulos, the young George Stephanopoulos, who's advocating for it. And to this day, Bernie Nussbaum was like, I told them <laughs> that I mean, hiring Ken Starr was a mistake. I mean, and- can you imagine like having been so like historically on the wrong, right side of history and no one listened to you? Like, I'd never stop talking about it either. He's like, he's like, I I really told them that Ken Starr was a mistake. I promise. Let the record did. show. Yeah. Uh, George Stephanopoulos is handsome and wrong, and I was right. <laughs> so there you go. Um, and like sort of the last last uh, element of this uh, Linda in the White House era before she uh, tragically fails a job interview, doing that thing you're not supposed to do, which is shit talk your current job. Yeah, don't man. do that. It makes you seem like a really bad employee. Um, is uh, she meets with a literary agent, Lucienne Goldberg, played by Margaret Martindale, and and at that point, Lucienne is is sort of trying to get her to give her whatever you know, dirty goss she can get on on uh, Clinton. It seems like, and this is something that Lucienne Goldberg herself, if you've ever seen her interviewed, incredible, swathed in velvet, often um will talk about um you know she was out there trying to get book deals for anyone who was. Anti-Clinton. Like, that yeah. was her whole thing. So. What an incredible character she is. And, like, you you like you like Google her and you're like, that. oh, yeah, that's exactly what she looked like. Margot Martindale is flawless casting for her. Like, she sits there. She has her phone, like an old-fashioned, like, white and chrome phone <laughs> that she, like, picks up on. She's wearing, like, feathers. Um, and she's so funny. Like, the, you see her. She's, like, on the phone while she's waiting to meet with Linda. And she talks about how Lady Bird Johnson pushed her down a flight of stairs at a party. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so funny. Funny, like, and in some ways, like in culture, where it's just like you are standing for a lot of despicable things, but like I get why you're good in a room. Yeah, exactly. You're she's a magnetic figure. Um, and sorry, I said I said last thing, but obviously, like this incident with Kathleen Willie coming out of uh, the Oval, flustered, lipstick smeared, um, yeah. asking for help from Linda, um, and then Linda, you know, absorbing that information the way that she does. Not terribly helpful and comforting, but absorbing yeah. it. And then later, when Kathleen Willie gets, you know, has a job and and Linda doesn't, doing a yeah, very dramatic shaking finger in the face. I'm gonna get you for this uh, yeah. moment. Um, but that's that's all part of the stew and basically the uh, investigation that the show is running which is why did linda trip do what she did right yeah. uh, in, i wanted to yeah oh go ahead. go ahead no go ahead i wanted to say about that disaster shop interview they had that like linda is really obnoxious in that interview like she's yeah. like well as you know i'm sure you know tony snow and like i get why they didn't like her but like oh, if totally. a man if a man did that like i don't think it would go over the same way like i don't think i don't know if that's part of what the show is saying but i do think linda's like power you know, puffing out her chest vibe mm, is something mm-hmm. that a lot of men do and That's get true. away with. And Linda didn't. That's true. And there's also just this exploration of like, 
what is once again like the word genteel like there there's something about um Lloyd Cutler is is uh you know the person taking over Bernie Nussbaum his his assistant in that scene and how she's like refined and like Kathleen Willey fits her mold of refined and Linda Tripp doesn't. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? There's just this sort of like, you don't fit in the same way that I feel like if the Clintons weren't from Arkansas, uh, I mean, Bill is Hillary isn't, but like if, if Bill wasn't from Arkansas, there's this whole aura of like Arkansas trash. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That, that, that lingers around the Clintons that, that allows their opponents, which I don't agree with. I should make clear, but like, which allows their opponents to take it to a tabloid level, I think, really quickly. Does mm-hmm. that make any sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I know as a Southerner, you're not going to let me get away with any Southern slander. I'm not sl- slandering <laughs> yourself. But, um, I mean, Lucy yeah. Goldberg says there's a Kmart spirit in the air. That's the, right. Uh, that's although, right. Although that's talking about the Clinton haters, I guess, not the um, not the Clinton people. But yeah, it's definitely um, go hand in hand. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's. Uh, oh, and I was reminded, I wrote this in the notes and and. Uh, Please, everyone listening at home, feel free to roll your eyes at my obligatory Game of Thrones reference. But I was just thinking about, <laughs> I was thinking about Littlefinger and I was thinking about Linda. And like this idea mm-hmm. of like someone who's like, I'm not being given what I'm owed. And um, um, the motivation being like, I have been slighted uh-huh. and I deserve more. And I'm going to manipulate things behind the scenes to ensure that that is, that, that people have slighted me fall and that I rise as a result. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not my complete portrait of Linda, but it's definitely a flavor of Linda. So, yeah. I yeah. mean, it's definitely something that like puts her, she's not exactly the like Clinton haters who were percolating around the time, but she is such an easy ally for them for that reason. Yeah. So then we go to the Pentagon and, you know, once again, we get that contrast as Linda walks in the Pentagon and then we get the introduction of Monica and Monica meeting Linda. And, um, what do you i mean once again i just have to like think about like what we have this moment where monica sees this bill clinton poster in this office that linda's occupying and it's not uh it's not linda's poster but that's what immediately draws her eye but that's not the only reason they're they're bonded by their loneliness we see them each eating dinner by themselves later a little later in the episode so they are the incredibly lonely both kicked out of the white house women who form this bond um linda perhaps immediately in a usury way we're not sure um but monica in a see something in linda that perhaps kathleen millie did once upon a time that mm-hmm. makes her seem like a place to go uh in all of this what, yeah, what do you and, think of that and yeah. monica already being like she's kind of too loose-lipped from the very beginning where it's like you know, why did you leave the White House? She's like, well, it wasn't exactly my choice. Like, you can, like, she's 24. Like, you can tell she's just kind of eager to talk about her feelings in a way, and she's been hiding it. Although, I think as the show emerges, like, she definitely didn't keep the whole thing a secret as much as she probably should have. Um, but you see why, like, Linda being right there would be so appealing to her. Um, I love that moment where uh, Monica sees the Bill Clinton poster in the in the office and she thinks it's Linda's office and Linda just says, there are fumes in my cubicle. And it's, it's such a good <laughs> Linda trip line. The whole thing about the fumes is really funny. Um, and the fact that they bond over talking about Weight Watchers meals in the cafeteria um, and like the the food and the body image culture, like it becomes maybe more of a topic we can talk about in future episodes. But like, it's just a, like, if you were there, you know, and you know why they'd be talking about Weight Watchers frozen meals in the cafeteria, which is so sad, but so, so correct for uh, who we know of these women to have been at the time. 
This is something that Sarah, um, in our interview with her in the preview episode, talked about at length that I thought was really interesting. This idea of like Monica and Linda as these women who felt uh, invisible in some aspects. And of course, like the way in which that would mean the attention from Bill Clinton for Monica is, Mm -hmm. you know, just, I mean, how irresistible you know what i mean yeah monica uh, was, yeah go ahead also shout out to the production design of the uh the office of the pentagon i was thinking about the uh the office in loki uh i remember what it was called but like the you know TVA, kind of this, yeah. this like grim modern uh like you know brutal office space and the pentagon is just like so much worse like what an <laughs> awful awful workplace it looks like yeah just and 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 uh yeah drab Awful. Yeah, they're all um, kind of dressed like the cubicles too, like all the like browns and grays of uh, the late nineties, like match yeah. the the vibe. It's just like you know, when Monica's like, or this is like, no one wants to be here. Like, oh yeah, no one wants to be no here. Wants to be here. <laughs> and and you are reminded of how young Monica is. Twenty three, about to turn twenty three. Yeah. I mean, wild, so young, wild. Um, so that's it. That's episode one. Well, no, you. I mean, sorry. You, uh, you skipped the reveal at the very end of the episode. Oh yeah, who Monica's boyfriend is? If you didn't know, <laughs> surprise. <laughs> Bill Clinton, Clive Owens here. Also in prosthetics. Um, I'll, you know, I, I mean, so we'll talk more about Clive Owens in future episodes. But you know, he's got his one line. It's kind of like that Spencer trailer with with Kristen Stewart. Where she says one line. Everyone's like, "Oh my god, she nailed it!" But like Clive Owen really does nail that one line. He has at the end of this episode. <laughs> it's true. I was worried, and it's a good line. But yeah, the. Uh, I love. Thank you for bringing up that Spencer trailer example because I'm, <laughs> I'm just like thinking about the Spencer trailer. <laughs> I'm like they plucked the. I mean, I, hopefully her accent's flawless throughout, but I'm like they definitely were like that's the her that's best the line. Let's use that one. Um, yeah, yeah. Clive's here. Sounds like Bill. Uh, looks like Bill. Looks like Bill is. Uh, is he as magnetic as Bill? Let's let's find out as the whole thing uh, unrolls. But um, yeah. And once again, the whole question of Bill on the margin, Bill is so on the margin in this episode. You know, we get more Hillary than we get Bill and we get barely any Hillary. Um, But uh, and that ongoing question that I want to keep asking about, like, is centering the women in this narrative, does that have an unintended consequence of downplaying Clinton's Bill's um, bad behavior? I don't know. Bad behavior. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see. It's a it's a it's a question I have. I'm not sure how I feel about it, but I want to keep looking at it. Like, does this show do enough, uh, you know, to 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 really give Bill his full level of responsibility in all of this? Yeah. Um. I hope so. I think so. Um. So that's it. Anything else you wanna you wanna mention? Um, <laughs> me almost forgetting the Bill Clintons in this episode. <laughs> Uh, I wrote down, is it weird that this makes me want a baked potato? Because uh, Linda goes home and microwaves her baked potato. And it's like, oh, it looks it, great. It's, in one episode, she says it's like the happiest moment of her day. And I was like, man, I would eat a baked potato right now. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. No, I think this is such a great uh, introduction to the show. Like, it's And it's efficient. Like, this stuff is complicated. Whitewater is really complicated. Really? And the Vince Foster stuff is so, it's also convoluted. Like, to understand how... Paula Jones, Monica Lewinsky, Ken Starr all got wrapped in together is really difficult. And I think this does a really good job setting all those pieces into motion. I am really excited to hear our colleague Chris Murphy talk to Annalie Ashford uh, about yes. playing, playing Paula Jones. So let's go ahead and listen to that. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham. And this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. 
Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Thank you so much for joining us, Annalie. I really appreciate it. I'm so happy to be here. Yes. Oh, my goodness. I, I got to say, uh, impeachment, the first episode of impeachment really, like, blew my mind. It was really, it was really, really it's really fantastic. And I've got to say, not to sort of out myself as um, a younger millennial, I <laughs> did not know that much about Paula Jones sort of going in to this process. So can you talk to me a little bit about like what you even remember from the Clinton affair and sort of what you knew before you went in and how familiar you were with Paula Jones? Yes, that's a great question. I'm a, I'm a little bit older than you, so I remember <laughs> a little bit more. No. Um, but I was a kid when it was happening, and I really remember this story and this moment in history from a late-night news perspective and mm-hmm. also late-night comedy perspective. First of all, why was everybody letting me stay up late? It was like I'd come <laughs> home from dance and then just watch like late-night talk shows. But um, no school. Yeah, part great. of where my sense of humor comes from, and... <laughs> Um, I just remember these women being treated mercilessly about their looks and made fun of about their involvement in, in this story. Um, so, you know, Monica Lewinsky was the first person really to be bullied on the internet. And I remember that. Um, but also specifically Paula Jones was just constantly made fun of, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, poking fun at her being from the South and calling her trailer trash. And then, people were just merciless about her looks and specifically about her nose. Um, So those are the things that I remember. And then I also remember that she was sort of the catalyst for all of the events that took place, but I wasn't quite as knowledgeable about how that happened. And I think this is just a really like shattering reminder that she was the first domino in, in the, in the fall of sort of the Clinton Mm. empire of that moment. Absolutely. And like she, yeah, she sort of, uh, yeah, the first domino to fall, it sort of knocked down, you know, the, the whole thing. And I love she what also, you said. She wasn't, she wasn't really interested in any of the political elements of this case at all. And in mm-hmm. the beginning, her objective for me as an actress, like, what is those characters objective? And Paula yeah. Jones, her objective was to please her husband. Yeah. All it was about was pleasing her husband, making her husband happy. And the fact that it led to this 
really horrific public shaming for her and um and really unwanted role in the uh conservative machine mm -hmm. is sort of like shocking absolutely i mean really i mean i think you hit the nail on the head it's really what she wants more than money or power which is neither of those things is an apology and there's something so like beautiful about that and a role for her husband in a film that was really great. <laughs> and really she didn't she i think she didn't even really want the apology really it's her yeah. husband wanted the apology so and her husband wanted a role so she really just was like she wanted to make him happy and mm -hmm. i think at the core of it from what she wanted from uh bill clinton was admonishment that you know that she didn't do this thing that she was being accused of it was so heartbreaking for her um to be accused of of doing a sexual act or a sexual favor that mm -hmm. that she claims that she did not do um and i think that was you know i love that she says a lot like i, I need to clear my good name you know yeah i really i i love what you said about the you know the 90s and late night television and how they sort of use these women as punching bags i mean it seems like we've got so far to go in that realm even you know in 2021 but i watching the show um seeing how you know how monica and linda and paula all sort of you know deal with their aesthetic appearances the weight watchers the slim fast the the makeover that eventually happens for your character um can you talk a little about how like were you how cognizant were you of of that those beauty standards that were sort of really on display and so like terribly sort of imposed upon these women at that time. I think that this show does a really great job of uh, reminding of us of the influence of the patriarchy at that moment mm -hmm. in time. So that's one piece of it. And then the other piece of it is, um, I think at that moment in history, if you were pushed into the public eye, you were just fair game. Mm -hmm. to be made fun of, to be talked about. Well, it's your fault that you decided to be in the public eye. These women didn't ask really to be in the public eye. And so they were pushed into this sort of microscope and microcosm of the way that they looked and the way that they walked and the way that mm -hmm. they behaved and the circumstances that they were in. Um, and so because of that, I, we felt that it was really important that we were pretty true to the way that Paula looked because it was such a mm -hmm. source of her narrative and her story during this moment in history um, to totally. the point where she had more makeovers than anybody else on the show. I had more wigs than anybody else. Wow. And those wigs we were had, really wild. Were some of those wigs are, they were amazing. They were amazing. And they were, we replicated them to a T to what was happening in those. I mean, we would look at pictures and like just myopically try to match them because it was so important and it was really important that I had a prosthetic nose because that yeah. was a part of her stories that she not only did she feel so bad about it but also um she was given this nose job for free people yeah. paid for it mm -mm. you know and all she got braces mm. um it just what it's wild what she underwent in under the public you know in the public eye physically. Um, and again, I really felt like it was, and the producers and, and Sarah Burgess are, are brilliant writer. We all just felt like it was just too important to not show that part of her journey. It was like, you know, subtext for her whole character. Absolutely. And as like an, an actress and a, a theater actress, so with, when you have, you know, those hours in the makeup chair, I'm sure it's like, you know, all the preparation for that was a lot. Does that help you 
sort of tap into the character more? Does it make you feel more encumbered? Did, was that, you know, the prosthetics and the wigs and how does yeah. that sort of affect your process? You know, every actor is different, but I always feel like that's the last piece of the puzzle. That's sort of the icing on the cake. Um, and I, you know, looked back at people's experience working on Crime Story um, and, the, the, you know, the, the previous installments and Courtney B. Vance so this amazing thing about playing Johnny Cochran, he was like, I was so nervous. He's so iconic. Also, Johnny Cochran, Linda Tripp, Paula Jones, you know, they're, they had very specific ways of speaking. They had a very mm. specific cadence. They had a very specific physicality. And so you totally. don't want to do an impression of the person, but you do want to give their essence. So I, you know, tried to really pick and choose things about her physicality, things about her um, vocal timbre and also dialect. Um, and then I always felt like, you know, Sometimes it'd be a while since I had had um, gotten to be on set, you know, just the way that shooting worked out. It'd be, mm-hmm. it'd be a couple of weeks before, I, you know, and then I'd come back and it was like I was putting on an old friend. You know, <laughs> I'd check in with her and watch lots of clips and mm-hmm. check in on my research. And um, it, she always just kind of felt natural to me. Um, and that was just like such a blessing. And, and uh, I also think uh, a reflection of, you know, my homework that I did, but also really, really specific, good wardrobe, really specific, yeah. good hair and good makeup. Wow. Okay. That's really, that's really fantastic. In terms of this preparation, um, how much, like where, uh, where did you do this research? Was it, were you online? Did you go to the newspapers? How did you sort of, you know, uh, create this, not, and again, not a caricature, but like walk this fine line between impersonation and also acting the person that is Paula Jones? Yeah, sometimes when you play a real character, a real person, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're always afraid of making them a caricature because sometimes in real life, they feel a little bit larger than life. Yeah. You know, and she is one of those people. She's got a really, um, I think, uh, sort of outgoing kind of broad personality as it is. So mm-hmm. you don't want to go too far and you still want to make her human. So I watched a lot of footage so thankfully there's tons of interview footage from her at all of these different points that we told the story um and then also i you know read as much as i possibly could get my hands on from the era and thankfully she's done quite a quite a few interviews about this this time in history um so I had, I had a lot to go off of. I used that. And then I also worked with a movement coach to make sure that I showed the progress, progression of her comfortability in front of uh, reporters and talking in the press. And she, she gets more and more comfortable and confident as the, as the years go by. And then also um, just really making sure that I really had her dialect specific and correct because yeah. it is a specific part of Arkansas. Mm-hmm. She, she speaks um, in a higher timbre, which is really common of women who are people pleasers like yes. myself. I'm a people pleaser. <laughs> so or, um, so well. yeah. So, and making sure though, that I could drop in when she dropped, you know, when she would have dropped in, you know, there mm-hmm. are times in, in her journey where she, she eventually, you know, puts up a fight and I wanted to make sure that she was grounded and, and could do that vocally. Um, so yeah, I, that's sort of, that was my journey in, in preparation. Wow. That's really fantastic. I would love to talk about within the first episode, you mentioned these reporters and there's a really heartbreaking scene. You know, Paula's first time at CPAC, you know, speaking to the press about what happened to her, where I think it's beautiful. It's really beautifully executed where basically a barrage of male reporters are basically 
treating her, you know, harassing her in, you know, uh, uh, verbally when she's talking about this sexual harassment that she received from Clinton. So can you talk to me about sort of filming that scene and how intentional it was that really it was all male reporters just sort of berating her and sort of how how that day went on set and what you were sort of going through because it was really it was really uh, it was emotionally heart-wrenching it's heartbreaking right Mm -hmm. so ryan murphy directed the first episode and the sixth episode which is always exciting and magic and he's just a you know a genius person so um when the day started he came in to check in and just sort of wanted to lay out how he wanted the the scene to feel and how he was going to shoot it um and he really wanted the audience to understand how overwhelmed she felt um, and out of her element. And he really wanted to share with the audience that sense of patriarchy that evaded this, this moment. And the biggest thing that I think is important for people to know is that we didn't elaborate or accentuate that male dominance. Mm -hmm. It was all lifted from what happened for real that day. Almost every word is stuff that she really said for real. And some of the reporters said for real. Wow. And it was all men. It was all men. It was a room full of men. There's footage. You can go watch footage of it. And there's some, that was always a, it was always a really important scene to me for many reasons. Like if we didn't get that scene right, then you wouldn't feel for Paula. And I think it's important Mm -hmm. as an audience member who is reflecting on this moment and figuring out how we could have done better as a culture and society, you have to understand Paula's perspective and point of view. Mm -hmm. And so that scene was, was how we were going to accomplish that. And the other thing that's kind of crazy about the filming of that day is that costume. We had to replicate what she actually wore that, Mm -hmm. that day at CPAC because it's sort of famous. There's a lot of photos of it. You can watch it. Um, and we actually found the real outfit on eBay because Paula Jones at some point in her life needed to auction it off for some reason. And somehow it ended up on eBay and I wore it in the show. No, the actual, that's actually, that's literally why that's actually, that's, that's on, that's unbelievable. Your mind. And we all felt it. It was like the power of this like garment that I had on my body. That she wore at that time. Wow. Yes. And you, we just, you know, we'd look back, we, that day prepping my hair and makeup, we just, we looked at a lot of archival footage of it and looked at a lot of pictures of it. And it was just like, it was a total mind F-U-C-K to like, <laughs> you to, say to, yeah. see, to like see her wearing what I was wearing in the makeup. Like, I'm, you know, it was why we were all like, Whoa, this is so meta. Wow. That really plays into it, which is like a, actually is blowing my mind right now a, a lot of these people i mean are still around i mean it's like the clintons are still around paula is still around you know and you've Coulter. got and culture george, george conway brett Kavanaugh. it's all of these sort of the easter eggs of these people who are literally you know and have some of them have ascended to you know some of the <laughs> highest uh spots of our nations um or highest positions that our nation allows what was the vibe like on set sort of, did you think about that a lot? Was that sort of like something that was sort of pervasive or is it just like, we have to shut that out and do the work that we are set out to do? 
Well, there's two parts to that. The first part is this, this show is like, I always think an act of social justice because it makes us reflect on what we could be better at as a culture and a society and how we did things wrong and how we can do things right now. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things that this show does. It makes you, it forces you also to see all points of view, which is a daring move from the producers. And I always think an important and brave one. Mm -hmm. It's something that sometimes we don't want to do. We, 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 you know, want to make the easy choice and just so show the, um, show one point of view. So from that perspective, I just found it fascinating how this story that we're telling was the seed that was planted for the cultural and political conflict that we are experiencing now. It was the beginning of tribal mm -hmm. politics that we see now. It was the beginning of really, really polarized Republican Democrat party resistance and not working with each other and trying to get each other. I mean, it's always been there from the dawn of time, but mm -hmm. I think the impeachment of Bill Clinton is really a bunch of the seeds planted for what we see happening today. Totally. So that's the first part. And the second part is that, um, yes, we are playing that we playing people that are still really active in public life. But I think there was a part of all of us that was like, just, just, move forward we're telling the story from this time in history and what did they want what were they trying to get in this moment you know our, as actors your first your first job is to figure out the objective of the character and so we all just sort of focused on that but it was also this is the only installment of crime story where, where anybody involved in the story has been a part of telling the story you know mm. there's usually so much research to draw upon we don't need to go to the source yeah but in this instance monica Lewinsky was a producer she was really present um and thankfully a major part of of retelling her piece of this story which was a piece of it there's you know this is just like a huge tapestry of so many threads and yeah. paula jones was really like the thread that unraveled it all unraveled it all and i think that's kind of going to be the thing that's most surprising to people when they revisit this story yeah wow i i gotta say that's really yeah just to keep your head down and and do the work and not sort of you know uh you can't really worry about you know how no. the clintons are gonna a, a couple of weeks after i got the job i literally went to um an opening night of a beautiful play and they were sitting right behind me <laughs> and i was like oh my gosh i you know i wanted to you know there there was it was such an interesting experience because I was like, I just got cast as Paula Jones. Yeah. You know, and it was so wild to have them like sitting behind me. You right know? there. I wondered if they, yeah, you know, you just sort of like, oh, whoa. That was yeah. sort of also a meta experience. But there's a lot of people that are in, in I, I, you know, it, it will be interesting to see how everybody sort of reacts to um, their involvement in our storytelling but one thing I can say is Sarah Burgess did just an outrageously beautiful job of writing it and yeah. really showing all points of view. So I, I, all I have to say is we went, we went by the research and we went by all the, the, I mean, the volume of documentation about this era is like ad nauseum. There's yeah. so, so much um, source material to back up what, what was on the page and what you ended up seeing on screen. Yeah. Wow. That's really that's really wild. Yeah. <laughs> Turn around, you get cast on this and you see them sitting right there. That, that's really, that's really, <laughs> that's really fantastic. I will say something again, sort of with Monica getting to retell this story. I do think like it, it can't be said enough. I haven't seen a bunch of these episodes and especially in the first episode, the emphasis on women and the female perspective, both Monica's and Linda Tripp's, I'd say the vast majority of the episode is centered around the women's voices in the story. Clinton doesn't even show up until the last millisecond of the first episode. Um, how, 
I mean, as you said, Sarah Burgess did like a ph phenomenal job, you know, sort of writing and uh, developing the uh, teleplay and the script. How important was that specifically in the whole uh, ecosystem of developing the show? I think it was the um, driving theme of the show is to make sure that these women's vo voices and stories were heard and told. Mm. Um, so you are dead right. The really the the purpose of telling this story was to tell it from the women's perspective this time around. Um, uh, Brad Simpson always says this amazing thing that at the time it was the men's story. It was you know Bill Clinton versus. Ken Starr and Newt mm -hmm. Gingrich and it was all of these towering men and the women's stories were never theirs they yeah. were just a byproduct of what the media told you happened and they were brutalized and made fun of for their looks and the way they talked and the way they behaved and and poor Monica Lewinsky every private moment over a two-year period that she had in her personal life was not only was it in a document that was used you know to impeach a president but but then they posted it on the internet which i yeah. think is a really important thing for people to look at when they're looking at the impeachment that just happened and if they're mm -hmm. going to compare it to that one we there's there was no release of the last report that just happened totally um the one that happened in the 90s was released and it reads like 50 shades of gray <laughs> yeah. you know i think that's sort of like a just a wild moment of history that you're like I, I, I can't believe that happened and it happened mm. in the 90s yeah you know wow. it's wild and it's just sort of like that was who was in control of that moment and that's how they decided to handle it and um so I also find it interesting that I really I mean I'm not being political this is just like an observation mm -hmm. it's really fascinating that the when you read the Ken Starr report the way that it reads the the conservative men who put that together it is it, it truly reads like a romance novel it's quite shocking yeah salacious um, yeah. it's very salacious so and again and monica could not speak during that time she literally could not speak that was part of her deal yeah. so i just think this is sort of a not only is it retelling from these three women's point of view and perspective but it's also like this really special opportunity for Monica to get the voice that she didn't have as a young woman then. Absolutely. Wow. That's really, it's really powerful. And it's only just beginning. We're only one episode in. <laughs> yeah. Get ready. It gets wild. Uh, it's so wild that you're like, I cannot believe this is real. If it you feels like it's it, not real to me. Yeah. If you wrote it, people would be like giving you all sorts of notes. That yeah. doesn't feel real. That's too weird. No, hat that's too hat. crazy. It's too you much. got hat on a hat. You got to edit, but <laughs> it was real. It's really, it's really wild. Wow. I got to say it, it's really, it's really phenomenal. And I know we only got a little bit of time left, but I just have to say as a big fan of your theater work, which, you know, it's so funny and, you know, excuse skews comedic, it's, you know, and, and also, you know, deeply felt, um, Paula also you found moments of really hilarious humor within Paula at the as well as you know doing all this sort of important you know storytelling of like of sharing her voice and her side of it but also there were some real there were actually some really sort of devastatingly funny moments and sort of did you think about that or just you know you know, it's such a great question, honestly. And unfortunately, the moments of comedy, all great moments of comedy come out of the highest stakes, um, the dark 
darkest moments. And for Paula, it truly was highest stakes, darkest moments. And they were so authentic. It's nothing that we decided to make funny or, or tried to make, mm-hmm. we did not try to make anything funny at all. We were literally just telling her story. Telling her story. And the, it, yeah. And the it's drawing of the, you know. Of larger than life. It larger. literally happened. Everything, you know, I'd have to really take a breath and be like, you know, uh, just sort of make sure that I wasn't playing into any of that because I knew it just was inherently uh, funny, you know, just wild. It's crazy that that happened, but it really happened. So we had to just tell the story and her, her sensibility is, is um, her sensibility and her energy is again, sort of childlike, this sort of, sort of childlike quality that sometimes lends itself to like making you smile. I just, I know, I know what you're saying. It's wild. It's a while, it's a while, it's a dichotomy because you see this woman who's like sort of so deeply, you feel bad for her. She's so deeply in over her head and yet you like her relationship with her husband, her relationship with these lawyers, you know, these, you know, again, these men who think they know what's best for her, her or they don't even frankly care what's best for her. They're caring no. what's best for themselves. And I think that's they're using her. She they're using her. Used. Yeah. Yeah. It, there's something really absolutely, uh, you know, tragically comic and heartbreaking about about that and that you like really tap into and uh i gotta say it just really is having seen i mean you know your work on state you know dot with you know i saw that Sunday Thank in the park you. With George, another you know woman another actually not dissimilar from another woman who's sort of trying to make her way you know and maybe not manipulated by a man but sort of navigate that her relationship with her you know her partner yeah um I can see there's these really phenomenal parallels. When do you think you'll ever get back on stage? Is that a crazy hey, last <laughs> No, I can't wait. I'm so excited. I'm so grateful that all my friends in the theater community are finally getting to come back to work. And it's such a blessing. And I think we need to shout it to the rooftops how long they've been out of work because people sort of don't understand or realize. Yeah. But um, I can't wait to become an active I can't wait to to join my friends in the theater community and, and become an active participant in bringing audiences back because we need it as um, we need it as a human race. We need to be all together again, collectively sharing it, sharing it, an artistic experience and in the theater in a dark room is the most, the most special way to do it. The most special way. And until then you got to watch impeachment. I mean, yes. <laughs> it's like, yeah, until we, until we get it back, that's the, you know, that's definitely. Amen. Tune in, tune in. It'll, it's good for your soul, your, your head and your spirit. Absolutely. It feels like a very unbelievably like uh, deeply um, intense and absurd and just jaw dropping play that actually did happen in real life, which is, you know, I know you, you can't you can't write this stuff. Oh, I'm getting a knock to come. Can't make time. it up. All right. right. Well, thank you so much, Annalie, for taking time out of your schedule. Thank um, you. And it was so lovely talking to you. Really. So good to talk to you too. <laughs> So that's it for us for episode one of American Crime Story Impeachment. We're so glad you're here for this with us. We'll be back next week uh, with more interviews, more discussion. Um, and now that we know who all the players are, I think it's only going to be um, a little easier to follow everything along going from here. Uh, Richard should be back. Until then, Katie Rich, where can folks find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Katie Rich uh, and over on Little Gold Men, which I, I guess we mentioned at some point. But that's where I am, too. You might know that. Uh, you can find me on vanityfair.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Joe wrote this. You can email all of us, stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. And you'll also find me 
I don't know, probably snagging a box of M&Ms from the commissary for myself, will, not just for my boss. So I will be go. happily eating my baked potato in my recliner. <laughs> Excellent. Until next week. Bye. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. From PRX.